So how many of you would consider yourself a good student? How many would consider yourself a good student? Like, like, like this is what I mean. <laughs> so I saw some people raise their hand and their friends go, nah. <laughs> and, uh, right? All right, so this is what I mean by that. A good student, you, you study hard, you, you, have, uh, you, uh, you push yourselves, you have academic goals, you may not reach your goals all the time, but you have academic goals. You do pretty well in school. You, you, you do your homework most of the time. Where, where are those people at in the house, right? All right, all right. How many people in the house get mad at those people? How many of you guys are mad at those people, right? Like that? Right, that's right. We're haters. We're haters. Like I know for me, I know for me growing up, my story was not that. I, I was not a good student all the way through school. And here's the deal. It wasn't because I wasn't smart. It was just because I didn't apply myself. And, and actually, one of the things for me is that, man, I think, I thought that homework was ridiculous. I'm like, I've been in school all day long. And now I got to come home and do schoolwork for the rest of the night. This is crazy. You know what I'm saying? Derek for president. And uh, no homework. And... Uh, so, so I hated, I hated homework, and so I just, I just would never do homework. So I do the, the, the schoolwork in class, and I would never do the homework. And so my grade, I mean, like you know, I was a, I was a C D student, an occasional B. I got like an A in like gym class or like weight training, where you don't have to do anything but show up. You know what I mean? And, uh, and so you know, and that kind of balanced out my GPA to be some subpar thing to where I couldn't get into any college that I applied for. And fortunately, I was an athlete, so I got some, you know, some, some, some. Some, uh, some opportunities that came available as a result of that. But man, I did not apply myself in school. In fact, when I graduated high school, I had read one book. One book. And it was Where the Red Fern Grows when I was in fourth grade. Fourth grade. No, no, no lie. And so, and so school was not like my thing. Like my parents' bumper sticker would have been that bumper sticker that says, my kid, my kid beat up your honor roll student. You know what I'm saying? Like that was my, like that was my high school career. And, and, and here's the thing, here's the thing. I eat through school. I eat through school. Just, just barely made it. I finally get through school and, and I didn't want to do more school, but like there's this thing called college that opens up other opportunities for you. And so I wanted to go to this college. And a part of that was, is I became a Christian just uh, a few months before, earlier in my senior year of high school. And so now I got, you know, I, I want to go and study to be a youth pastor. And I don't even know what that means. And so I get to this school. And uh, in the first semester, all of the bad habits that I had in college carried with me into my freshman year of college. Now, I want to tell you, my, freshman, my first semester of college was a lot of fun. But I did not get anything done in the classroom. You know what I'm saying? Like, it was a disaster. I had one class, it was Psychology 101, that I went to three times during the whole semester. I went the first day of school, I went the second day of school, and I went for the final exam. That was it. Right? And, and here's the thing about college. The thing about college is, is that college is one of those things that, uh, that is super expensive and they don't care. Like when I was in high school, the teacher would be like, oh, he's back on some assignments. He would shoot an email to my parents. My college professor is not going to do that. They're like, you're an adult. So I get to the end of my first semester and my grades were a wreck. And I get home and my parents get my grades. And they were not happy, <laughs> to say the least. In fact, they sent me down and they said, Derek, you're not going back. And I was ticked. 
We had it out, this major fight. I was like, what do you mean I'm not going back? Yeah, I am going back. My girlfriend was there. My friends were there, right? Like I had created this life for me at college, and you're not going to take that away. And my parents were like, I don't care. You're screwing around. You're screwing around with all the stuff that you're doing, and you're not paying attention. You're not doing anything that you're supposed to be doing. And as a result of that, uh, we're wasting a lot of money, and you're not getting out of what we thought we were. So you can go to a community college down the road. And I was so upset. And then one of my mentors was meeting with me. And he started affirming what my parents were saying. And I was getting mad at him. And he said this. He said, Derek, do you want to make a difference? Well, I said, yeah, of course I want to make a difference. I mean, I'm going to study to be a youth pastor. Like, of course I want to make a difference. He's like, you want to make a significant difference? I said, yeah, I want to make a significant difference. And he says, I don't know anyone who has ever made a significant difference that is a screw-around, screw-off type of person. I don't know anyone. And I'm going to tell you, when he said that, man, it smacked me upside the head. It was, a, it was a turning point in my life. It was a turning point in my thinking. It was a turning point in who I was. At that moment, it began to all click for me. And it was like, you know what? I do want to make a difference, but I can't make a difference if this world just becomes all about me and I screw around and do what I want to do all the time and I burn all of the opportunities that are ahead of me that are going to better me and help me grow in my life. So I went to my parents and I started talking to my parents and I begged my parents. I said, things are going to be different this semester. He said, we'll give you one more semester. And I'm here to tell you that it was a turning point for me, significant turning point. That I actually graduated with a double major, not in four years, but in three and a half years, a semester early, even with that flubbed semester I had at the beginning. I graduated with a master's degree in four and a half years. At 21 years old, I had a master's degree, and I bought my first house, a five-bedroom house. I rented out, uh, I'm sorry, a four-bedroom house. I rented out three of the rooms in the house. It paid my entire mortgage. I lived for free. And, and, and I, begin, I begin in this process of growing and learning, I begin reading. Where now I read, you know, 20 books plus a year. And I love to read, and I love to grow, and I love to learn, and those type of things. I mean, this was a significant turning point in my life. And this is what I can tell you. What I can tell you is, is that throughout your life, you are going to have these turning point moments. These turning point moments where literally something happens, and it literally changes the trajectory of your life. I know for me, when I got married, that was a turning point moment. That changed the trajectory of my life. When my wife told me, I'm pregnant... That was a turning point moment, right? It changed the trajectory of my life. And I can point to my call to ministry, to all these different things in my life, and how those turning point moments have literally been the core shaper of who I am now today. And I'll also tell you that the most significant turning point moment in my life is the day that I said yes to Jesus. That is the most significant turning point moment. In fact, all of the other turning point moments in my life are a domino that has fallen as a result of that decision that I made when I was 17 years old. Because, see, I was a screw-up not only in academics, but I was a screw-up in life. 
For those of you that have been around age 12 and you've heard my story, I've told you that I was addicted to drugs and I was, I was partying all the time and I was drinking all the time and it was all about girls and it was all about fulfilling the things that I thought was going to bring me happiness and bring me joy and, and it was all about myself becoming king of my life and, and that's what it was and that's how I was living my life and, and it was literally leaving me emptier and emptier and emptier the more popularity, the more reputation that I began to build for myself. And then, on July 14th, 1998, my life intersected the cross, the message of Jesus, the most important historical event in all of history. In fact, in fact, the cross is the most significant event in all of history and the most significant event in every person's life, when you understand what was accomplished through the cross of Jesus. And if you're taking notes, you can write this down in your notes, that the cross is the turning point in human history. It is the turning point in human history. It is the most significant event that's ever happened, orchestrated by God. And, and I want to explain this to you. I want you to know why we've been going through this series. See, the whole purpose of this series is to help you see the message of the Bible. What is the Bible trying to communicate? And this is what I know. I hear people say this to me all the time. They'll say, well, I'll tell you what. Why didn't God give us more about himself? Why didn't he reveal more? Well, um, bro, you don't read this. And you want more? See, at the end of the book of John, it says that you could have taken everything that Jesus did and you could have written it down in books, and it says that there would not even have been enough room in the entire world to hold all of the books that would have been written. The problem is no one would have been able to have read it. So God has given us his word, and he's given us what we need to know about him. And, and this unlocks the truth, and it shows us all who God is, and it gives us his character, and it gives us who he is, and it tells us his plan for, for our lives. And what we see in the Bible is we see this, this one big story, this, this one story that's unlocked within the pages of Scripture. And this story is the salvation history of mankind. It is the history of how salvation was brought into this world. It is the history of how God orchestrated everything for His purposes in order to bring us to maybe this moment tonight for you specifically so that you could encounter the cross, the central turning point in human history, so that your life could be changed forever. See, in the Bible, what we see is we see these four major plot movements throughout Scripture. We talked about the first one in the first week of this series. Todd talked about that. Mark talked about the second one last week. Tonight, I'm talking about the third one. Next week, we're talking about the fourth one. And these four plot movements are this creation, uh, the fall, redemption, which we're talking about tonight, and restoration. And if you can understand these four plot movements, if you can understand what God is trying to communicate in his word throughout the scripture, what, it will help unlock the Bible to you when you begin to read it. It'll help you understand it. And I want you to see this as the turning point, the cross being the turning point in human history. We're going to open this up and we're going to look at this and I'm going to show you why this is the case. So let's do a little bit of a recap. The first week we talked about uh, creation, the fact that God created that God is the creator, that everything that we know in this world was conceptualized by God, that it was his idea. It was his idea to create the oceans and the mountains and the trees. It was his idea to put the animals on the planet. It was his idea and his creativity that created you and placed you here on this earth. And this is a significant deal. God is the creator. 
And when God created everything, he said this about his creation. He said that it was good. In fact, he goes on after he creates man, and he says that it was very good. And when God created everything, what he means by the fact that it's very good is that it's not tainted. There's no sin involved in it. Genesis chapter 2, we see that God brings all the animals before Adam. He tells Adam to name them. And then he says to Adam, he, tell, he says, uh, Adam can't find a suitable companion. So he says to Adam, let me give you a companion. He puts Adam to sleep and from his side, from his rib, he creates Eve. Woman. A helpmate to Adam. And then at the end of Genesis chapter 2, the Bible tells us that a husband shall leave his wife. They shall cleave to one another and become one flesh. In other words, they shall get married to one another. They'll have kids. They'll procreate. And they will begin to populate the earth. And this was a big deal. And God sets them in the garden. There's no sin. There's no death. There's no disease. There's no cancer. There's no pain. There's none of that. And God tells Adam and Eve in the garden, he says, listen, you can eat from all these trees, but you can't eat from this tree. And if you were here last week, you saw the fall. And the fall was that Satan tempts Adam and Eve. And he tells them, he says, listen, the reason God tells you not to eat from this tree is because God knows that if you eat from this tree, you're going to be like him. God's holding out on you. God's holding out on you. That's why he doesn't want you to eat from this tree. And Adam and Eve started thinking, well, that makes sense. God is holding out on us. They forgot for a moment who God was. They forgot his character. They forgot that he created them. They forgot who he was. And so they ate from the tree, and we know as a result of that, sin entered the world. They were disobedient to God. Now what we know about God is because God is good, because God is holy, because God is just, because he's loving. Because of that, sin cannot be in the presence of God. God cannot look upon sin because God is perfect. And sin, or something that is blemished, cannot be in the presence of perfection. And so as a result of that, God kicked them out of the, the, the Garden of Eden and then God delivered down a punishment as a result of the sin that they committed. And a part of that punishment was death. We know this to be true. I mean, it's a pretty bleak picture. Now that's Genesis 3. From Genesis chapter 3 to the end of the Old Testament, it is the story of God, God working out his plan to bring mankind back to himself. It's a beautiful picture. In fact, what we see in the Old Testament is, is, that, is that God calls this guy Abraham. And he tells this guy Abraham to go to this place he's going to show you. And he tells Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And Abraham becomes, becomes the, the father of Isaac. And Isaac, the father of Jacob. And, and out of Abraham's grandson, Jacob, God changes his name to Israel. And Jacob, or Israel, has 12 sons. And these 12 sons become known as the 12 tribes of Israel. And as the population of God's people grow... Well, what we see is, is that God has his favor on them. He has his hand of protection over them. This is the story of the Old Testament. And God promises that he is going to bring redemption through all mankind through this people group called the Israelites. This is why God's protecting them. But if you read through the Old Testament, what you see is, is that these people are constantly disobedient to God. They're constantly rejecting God. They're constantly walking away from God. They're constantly setting up idols and, and worshiping idols. They're constantly doing things that go against God's plan. But God is unbelievably patient with them. He's patient with them. He loves them. That even though they keep breaking their promises to God, God never breaks his promises to them. And all throughout the Old Testament... 
We see this. We see Isaiah through Malachi. Malachi being the last book of the Old Testament. Isaiah being the start of the prophets. All the prophets, they're speaking from God, telling the people, turn to God, turn to God, turn to God, turn to God. And the people keep over and over again turning back to themselves, turning to other things. They'll turn to God for a short time, and then they turn away from God. But God remains true to his promise. Now, this is what you have to see. What you have to see is, is that the Bible isn't just a bunch of stories that don't relate to you. The Bible is the story of you. The Bible is the story of you. See, here's the thing. The Israelites were real people, and, and, and going through that in their time, that is the first level of what the Bible's talking about. At the second level of what the Bible's talking about is he's saying, listen, we are all like the Israelites. Every one of us are the Israelites. We all want to do our own thing. We all want to go our own way. We look to God and then we look away from God. We walk towards God, we walk away from God. And this is the pattern of our lives. And just as it was leading to destruction for the Israelites, it leads to destructions in our own lives. But the truth is, is that God's promises to us remain the same. God always holds his promise to us. God is so patient with us, even when we don't deserve his patience for us. This is the loving God that we see in the scripture. And then it happens. The New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record the birth of Jesus. The birth of Jesus. The one that the prophets had talked about. The one that the Old Testament was speaking about. The one that God had promised from the beginning saying, hey, there's a Messiah. There's this one, this anointed one that is going to come. And he's going to take away the sins of the world. You are now under the bondage of slavery to sin. But there's going to come a day where you're going to be set free by this Messiah that's going to come. And so all of the Israelites and all the people of God were eagerly awaiting the entrance into the world of this Messiah. And they didn't know what this Messiah was going to be. They didn't know if it was going to be, they didn't know if it was just going to be God coming down from heaven and setting up a kingship. They had no clue what this Messiah was going to look like. And God does something unique. He does something interesting. He shows up in the flesh on this earth as a baby, born of a virgin. See, it's significant that Jesus was born of a virgin because he was born of a virgin meant that he did not carry the sin nature because the Bible tells us we all have a sin nature as a result of the sin of Adam. Is that my fault? <laughs> yeah, that is my fault. <laughs> What's wrong with these people? Our missions pastor. Back to what I was saying. So... So Jesus is born, and, and he's born in a manger, and we know the Christmas story, you know, there was, there was the, you know, the, the shepherds, and there was the star, and there was all the things that surrounded the Christmas story, and, and then what we know is, is that Jesus grew up, he grew up, we see another picture of him when he's like 12 years old, and he's, he's blowing the minds of the religious leaders during that day in the temple. And then when Jesus is 30 years old, he starts his earthly ministry and he starts it by calling these 12 guys to follow him, the disciples that we know them to be now. But back then they were just known as a bunch of ragtag group of fishermen and tax collectors and outcasts and uneducated people of society. These were not the type of people that a rabbi would have chosen to follow them, not the type of people that, that would have been on the A-list, but Jesus chose these people to show that his strength through them. And these guys lived with him over three years. 
And people begin to see the miracles of Jesus. They begin to see people getting healed. They begin to see, <laughs> they begin to see uh, Jesus the way he loved people and the way he cared for people. And this rabbi was different. See, all of the other rabbis had got it twisted. They had made, they had made their faith in God all about a religion. It was all about following rules. In fact, they had made rules over rules over rules over rules in order to make sure that they wouldn't break certain rules. Like the Bible says, honor the Sabbath, and then they would go and they would make a couple hundred laws just on the Sabbath just to make sure that they wouldn't break the Sabbath and keep it holy. And Jesus comes on the scene, and they would expect that he would bring more rules because this is what rabbis did. But Jesus comes on the scene, and he does the opposite. He says, hey, listen, it's not about rules. It's not about religion. It's not about what well, you've perverted, the idea of who God is to be. This is about a relationship with God. It's about a relationship with God. And Jesus did more than just talk about it. He, he, he spoke. In fact, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. Jesus, Jesus he didn't come uh, just with answers. He came with authority. He didn't just come with answers, he came with authority. That when he spoke, people listened. And Christianity, you can put this in your notes as well, this is actually your second notes. Christianity isn't something that you do, but it's who you are. Listen, Christianity isn't something you do, it's who you are. It's not about following some set of rules. Obviously, sometimes we can feel that way in church, right? It's like, okay, here's the deal, bro. You want to be a Christian? Don't drink, don't smoke, don't hook up, don't go to parties, don't this, don't that, don't this, don't that, don't this, don't this. Oh, by the way, not only is there the list of the things that you're not supposed to do, but then there's also the list of the things that you're supposed to do. You need to go to church, you need to read your Bible, you need to pray, you need to tithe, you need to help out poor people, you need to be kind to people, you need to be nice to your sister who's mean to you. You know what I'm saying? And what can happen is, is that we begin to look at this Christianity thing and we begin to get frustrated. Anybody ever been frustrated with that idea of Christianity? Right? I know I have. And so this is what we start thinking. We're like, well, I do some of these things good, but some of these things I'm not so great at. Or for some of us, we're like, I don't do any of them good, right? And there's this kind of war that's raging in us. And we're like, man, like, I want to be a good Christian and I want to represent Jesus well. But the truth is, is that I feel like there's so many of these things that I shouldn't be doing. And so many of these things that the, that the pastor tells me I should be doing. Can I even be a Christian to begin with? And Jesus is like, wait, 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 wait. You're making it about the way that the Pharisees made it about. You're making it the way the religious made it. It's not about what you do, it's about who you are. Let me, let me give you an example like this. A human is not what I do, human is what I am. Like, I, I breathe, I talk, I sing. I drive. I do all these things because I'm a human. This is, this is something that humans do. It's who I am. I don't just do them to do them. I do them because it's who I am. And listen, listen, here's the deal. Jesus comes on the scene. He says, look, give your life to me. Surrender your life to me. And what's going to happen is, is that I'm going to begin to change who you are. That when you begin to carry the identity of Christian, when that becomes who you are, then it begins to translate in what you do. 
You don't do them because I'm telling you to do them. You're just doing them because you're changed. It's, it's who you are. So, so when I gave my life to Jesus when I was 17 years old, and the Bible says if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. When I gave my life to Christ, what happened in that moment was that God changed my heart. And so before then, I was running in my own way, doing my own thing, and, and I was doing drugs, and I was partying all the time. I was doing all this kind of stuff, and when I gave my life to Christ, that completely changed. It didn't change because I was like, you know what, I'm going to stop doing drugs. And it literally came to this point where I no longer had a desire to touch that stuff anymore, that God literally changed my heart. It wasn't that I didn't mess up in things because I did mess up in things, but God began to change my heart in that. I didn't know that cursing was a sin because I didn't grow up around the church. So I was a new Christian. I was cussing like crazy. And one of my buddies was like, bro, you probably shouldn't drop the F-bomb at church. And he, I started looking at scripture. And, and I didn't want like, oh, man, well, okay, well, I, so I shouldn't cuss because that's what I should do. It's just God began to change these things and who I was. And I began to become this. And so when I, got, when I became a Christian, the first week after I became a Christian, I read the whole book of Luke. I didn't read the whole book of Luke because somebody told me to go home and read the whole book of Luke. Somebody gave me a Bible because I was a new Christian. I came home and I was like, I don't know what to do with this, but I'm kind of hungry to know more about who God is. And so I just took the Bible and I went boom like that. And it was Luke. And I flipped over to chapter one and I read it. And then somebody was talking to me about the book of Revelation. And I was like, dude, I've never heard of the book of Revelation. That end time stuff sounds kind of cool. I wouldn't recommend it if you're a new believer and never read the Bible. But I was like, I'm going to read that. And I went home that night. I've been a Christian like two weeks. And I sit in my bed and for like four hours, I read the book of Revelation. And I just kept, I was like, I don't understand that. I would make notes. And then, and then I went to my youth pastor. I said, what does this mean? And, and all this kind of stuff. Because it wasn't nobody telling me, saying, hey, dude, you need to go read the Bible. It said God had changed my heart, and I wanted to know more about him. I don't read the Bible because I'm supposed to. I do because I know that it's the source of the truth about who my God is and who I love. And I want to know more about him. I want to know how I can, how I can be more connected to him. And so, so that's why that I read the Bible. It's who I am. It just comes out of me. Jesus shows up and he tells the people that it's about a relationship, it's not about rules. He showed the people that God was near to them. He showed the people that God had not left them alone. And he showed the people that he was the Messiah and the Savior. And then he's arrested. And he's tried in front of a rigged jury on false charges. And then he's sentenced to be crucified. One of the most horrific punishments that you could possibly ever conceive of. The Romans were masters of torture. And so were the nations that were before them, the Greeks and, and the Persians before them. And they adopted crucifixion because of this. In fact, there's stories that, that leading uh, through the Roman Empire of them crucifying over a thousand people at one time. They executed people like this all the time because it was slow and it was painful. And Jesus was sentenced to be crucified. And before he was crucified, he was flogged. Where they take a whip with, with bone and rock and such inside of the, the, the piece of the whip. It's called the cat of nine tails. And it would have uh, just different layers of leather off of it that would have this stuff in it. And as it would go across your back, it would literally dig into your back. And as it would snatch it back, it would rip flesh from your back. And it would bruise, it would bruise your ribs. And it would oftentimes break your ribs. In fact, most people, many people died during the flogging part of it. 
They rarely flogged people before they crucified them. Which is why Jesus didn't make it very long when he got to the cross. Because he was beaten so bad, they spit in his face. They stripped him naked and they cast lots for his clothes. And while he's on the cross and they're casting lots for his clothes, this is what he says to them. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they're doing. He's patient with them, even on the cross. Patient. They're going their own way. They're doing their own thing. They're living for themselves. They think they know what they're doing, but they don't. They're deceived. The only thing that matters is a relationship with me, and they don't get it, but I'm patient with them. Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they're doing. And he dies on the cross. And people are shocked. He didn't stand up for himself. He didn't complain. He didn't defend himself. And they're like, something's different about this Jesus. Something's different about him. We don't know what it is, but something's different about him. And then something crazy happens. Three days later, he raises from the dead. They go to the tomb and the tomb is empty. The soldiers that were set at the tomb in order to protect the tomb from anyone trying to steal the body are, are not there. They're, they're, they've been taken out and, and the stone has been rolled away. This is a crazy moment that Jesus has raised from the dead. And then Jesus begins to reveal himself to all these different people. Showing that he defeated sin and death. This is unbelievable. It's amazing. It is spectacular. As we're coming up on Easter, this is the story of Easter. It is that we celebrate that Jesus rose again from the dead. That there is hope, that we don't worship a God who's still in a grave. We don't worship a man, Jesus, who is still in a grave. We worship a risen Savior in Jesus. And that's why we talk about redemption tonight, because the cross, this moment in Scripture 2,000 years ago, is the turning point in all of history. All of history. See, when Jesus got crucified, it wasn't a blip in God's plan. It was God's plan. When, when Jesus was crucified, it wasn't like, oh man, they just killed a great teacher. It was that Jesus gave his life up. See, when Jesus came, he didn't come to save his life. He came to give his life. The Bible says to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the good news. See, the bad news is, is that for all of us, we have sinned and we're separated from God because of our sin. But the good news is, is that Jesus came and made a way for us to be restored to God. This is the glorious message of the entire Bible. This is it. How many of you guys ever got a uh, speeding ticket before? Anybody? <laughs> all the adults. <laughs> and some shit. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about right there, man. Yeah. He's like, yeah, that's me. Dude, I, I, I got the speeding ticket. <clears throat> I got the speeding ticket. And uh, I was going fast. <laughs> and uh, too fast. And, uh, and uh, so I, I, I uh, you know, when you get a speeding ticket, you have to go to the courthouse. And so here's the deal. I thought I was going to be smart and I was going to defend myself. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I'm going to defend myself. Before the judge or whatever. Now, fortunately for me, I wasn't the first person to get up in front of the judge. I get into the, I get into the room and I'm hanging out in the, in the court, courthouse and there's all these other people that have gotten speeding tickets and different things. And, and I start watching people get up before the judge and I start watching people start trying to defend themselves. And I watch the judge laying a smack down on them. You know what I'm saying? 
So I get up there and he says, what do you plead? I was like, I plead guilty. <laughs> Just like that. All that macho man I was going to be when I came in there, I was like a little punk. And uh, so I go up to the, cur- to the clerk that was, uh, that was there working. And, uh, and, and she says, I don't remember how much it was, but let's say it was a hundred bucks. And, uh, she's like, you know, that'll be a hundred bucks. And so I hand her my, my, my credit card and I was upset about it, you know, and it's kind of one of those like moments like, mm, you know, uh, I got a ticket and she swipes my card and she hands it and she hands the card back to me and she goes, and she takes a stamp, like a stamper and she goes, boom, just like that. And she said it just like that. Like I jumped. I'm like, whoa, lady, what's wrong with you? You know what I'm saying? And she goes. Boom! Like that, and, and, and stamp paid right there on the middle of my speeding ticket. I was like, Whew. and she says, you're free to go. And I was like, all right, ma'am. And I, and I, and I took that out, right? And, and as I reflect on this, this is, a, this is a perfect picture. This is a perfect picture of, of the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is this. It would tell us in Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's you, that's me, that's all of us. That every one of us are descended all the way down from Adam. And as a result of that, we live in a sin-filled world. It's why we have to pray for Cassie who has cancer because sin is in our world. All have sinned. You have, I have. And sometimes we like to think, well, I'm not that bad of a person. You know, like just because I'm mean to my sister, are you saying I'm a sinner? Listen, it's more than that. For all of us, it's more than that. We've all said no to God at times in our life. We've all gone astray. We've all allowed ourselves to try to become the king of our own life. At some point in our life, we've all done that. It's more than that. And the Bible tells Romans 6, 23, in the wages of sin or the penalty of sin is death. The penalty of sin is death. It's not just physical death as we know we all die, but it's spiritual death, eternal separation from God. In other words, we all have a speeding ticket. The difference is, is that the price tag on that speeding ticket isn't 100 bucks. It's your life. And you can't pay it without giving your life. And what Jesus did is that Jesus stepped in on the cross as the sinless, spotless sacrifice. The Bible tells us he was tempted every way yet without sin. He dies on the cross for your sin and for my sin. The Bible would say it this way. He died on the cross in your place for your sin. He died on the cross in your place for your sin. Paying your debt. Literally, boom, paid. So that when you put your trust and faith in Jesus. When you put your trust and faith in Jesus. When you repent of your sins, you turn to Jesus. Your sin debt is paid in full. Now no longer do you have to give your life because your, your, your sin debt's already been paid. He's already given his life for you. And literally, God says, you're free to go. The cross is God's boom for you and for me. The most significant turning point, point in human history, and it is the most significant turning point for your life and for my life. And that's the message of redemption. The word redemption means to save from evil or to save from destruction or to save from. And Jesus came to save us from death, from hell, from separation from him. 
This was God's plan. This is the story of the Bible. It is the story from creation to the end of Revelation. It is the story of God bringing in his great love, restoration, and, and, and redemption to mankind. That's the message of the Bible.